Good morning, church. Let me pray. God, you're with us here among us. You're in this room. You dwell here. Um, God, we trust that you're going to make this passage come alive in our lives, in our hearts this morning. So come, do what you will. Amen. All right, so Isaiah 43. I mainly wanted to kick off this morning with a, a question, somewhat of a general question, that being, what are we individually and really as a whole feeling in this season? Not just as individuals, not just as a local church, but as a people, as humanity. And not necessarily the most encapsulating feeling, but possibly the most shared, the most common. That being the feeling of isolation. If you look back to March when the lockdown first happened, you, much like everyone else here, went through a span of time, perhaps weeks, months, of not seeing anyone else in person besides the people that you lived with. The only interactions that you had with other people were social media, text, Zoom, Google Hangouts, and things like that. It was a different way of life. It was not normal, and it was contrary to the way that we were designed to be, in person, in proximity with other people. For some of us, it enabled an already present desire to not engage with people, but perhaps this took it too far. Like when the lockdown hit, I think some of the introverts were like, yes, me time. Um, I don't get to hang out with people. That's actually a good thing. But when it hit week two, when it hit month two, we were all starting to feel it. And for a lot of us, we felt the depression, we felt the anxiety, and we felt the unrest begin to take over. But when it opened back up, and it's slowly still opening back up, has that really changed? We've been, as a church, opened back up to some degree since June. So in person, in this room, having Sunday gatherings since June. We sit in the same room, but are we still miles apart in the way that we interact? Are we still going through a routine, but not having any kind of accountability with one another? Without having a deep friendship? without building up the body and using our gifts in the way that God has called us to live and to serve. That same question, the feeling of the season, goes for the people of God in the passage here. Because at this point, they're exiled. They're in Babylon, hundreds and hundreds of miles away from home, from the promised land. They're exiled because of their sin. So there's a need of redemption And with that sin, it's not just brought great pain and separation from their community, but it's also in their relationship with God. So for both of us, there is a deep need for communion with God. Now, let's get this straight. Both them and us today have Scripture. They had 
the Pentateuch. They had the first few books of the Bible. And we have Scripture as a whole right now. But we need His presence. We need God's presence in order to not only understand Scripture, but to follow God's lead and experience what He promises and gives. Let me say that again. We need God's presence in order to not only understand Scripture, but to follow God's lead to physically do something, and to experience what he promises and gives. It has to be a reality. And in that reality, we need his presence that we already have been singing about and talking about. God responds to that with fear not. He says it two times in this passage. First being in verse 1, fear not, for I have redeemed you. Now God is saying this to his people right after talking about their error in the previous chapter, which helps provide some context here. Because he's saying in the previous passage that they are deaf and blind to him. They're unable to follow or understand what God is saying. And really, this is just a repeat from chapter 1. God is straight up with them in chapter 1 of what they have been neglecting to do and following him and being obedient to him. And he's warning them, There's judgment coming if you do not change. And here we are in chapter 43, and judgment has come. Their way of life has radically changed. They've been taken away from their home. Now, this isn't a failure on God's part. God's been faithful to what He promised, to what He said He would do. This is on Israel's disobedience, and that's why they're in Babylon. Now, in similar ways, this can get turned on us, and in similar ways, we can also be deaf and blind to what God is calling us to do. Because we all have our routines. We all have, I think, a general idea or plan of what it looks like to walk with Jesus. But the error is we can become so attached to that that we miss what God is saying or doing in the moment. We can miss that. And yes, Christians, this can happen to us. We can fall into this thing as well. A really good example of this is what Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians 5, where he says, back to back, do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Do not quench the Spirit. Okay, good enough, Paul. Don't despise prophecies. Ooh. He's touching on the most, one of the most, if not the most controversial and initially uncomfortable things in the church in all of history. God moves and speaks in the moment. Not contradicting scripture, but affirming it and calling his people or an individual to do something. And here's Paul saying, Urging us, do not grieve the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit and what He's doing in it because God gave it. Yes, it's going to be uncomfortable. Yes, it's going to challenge us. But would you rather be uncomfortable or would you rather be deaf to what He's calling you to do? It's going to bring more joy. That's what He's saying to His people here and I think that's what He's saying to us today. 
that even us, family of God, that we are, it's possible for us to resist. It's possible for us to overlook or even condemn what God is doing in the moment. Now, with prophecy, man, we can talk about that for a really long time, about its mistreatment, about how it's harmed so many people throughout generations, but at the same time, we can also look at how it's built up the church and how it sent missionaries and how it's brought the gospel to unreached, unengaged people groups. But God is calling us forward. God is calling us here to serve the body. We need to understand how he's doing that and how he's calling us perhaps to lead, how he's calling us to repent in certain areas, or how even he's leading us to step out in boldness to share the gospel, to encounter people, to encourage people. But the thing is, we can suppress it. We can write it off as an emotional moment. Huh, I got carried away. To think of someone who is maybe better qualified to lead, right? Man, look at my weaknesses. Look at them. Aren't they a better candidate? Or when it comes to our sin, just rationalize it. Justify it as a necessary evil. So for us in Israel, this is actually a big problem. Because in light of our circumstances and their circumstances with isolation, with our own sin, alone, that's heaping condemnation. All at the same time, you have a world full of need and brokenness. We abdicate from our responsibilities and what God's calling us to. Great. But in 40, chapter 43, God follows up with what he says in chapter 42 with this. But. But now thus says the Lord. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. Now, pause there. God's reminding his people and us today that despite all of that stuff, he has taken great care in creating us. As David writes in Psalm 139, God formed us in our mother's wombs. He knitted us together. He knows. He knows our thoughts. He knows our desires and the brokenness that's with it. Every part of us was specifically crafted by the potter's hand. Every part. And in verse 7 he says, it's for his glory. We are all different because it's for his glory. And what's really sweet to notice here is that as he goes through this flow, there is a greater increase of intimacy. That we're not just created, like God's this watchmaker in the sky, he fine-tunes it and lets it go off on its own. He didn't just print us off on a 3D printer, and there we go. But he didn't just form us, crafting us by hand. He says, I've redeemed you. He's called you by name and says, you are mine. Those are defining words to individuals and a people, then and now, 
who have lived years under the defining voice of shame, under the defining voice of guilt. God says, you're mine. Verse three, he says, he's our savior. He says, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your savior. I give to Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Now, this is pointing back to the Exodus and then beyond that. But what we see essentially in that story is God moving the course of history, the rise and fall of nations for his glory and for the redemption of his people. And what you see from that point, from the Exodus on, well, even before that, that his people have always been preserved. The longest standing group of people in all of history who have stood through the test of time have been preserved by the Lord. And in response to that, I think the common question is why? Why did he choose us? Why did he say to us, to you, and to me individually and as a whole, you're mine? Verse 4. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I love that. Because for us, there's no Hebrew style of poetry to, to work through symbolism. There's no repetition or, or themes to work through. God is just straightforward with us and says, you're precious to me. As a father speaks over his children, you're precious to me, child. I'm honored and I love you. He sees the brokenness. He sees the, the addictions. He sees the struggles in the faithlessness. But greater still, he sees you as precious. You need to know that today. If we walk away with anything today, know that. He views you as precious. And he continues through the rest of verse 4. I give men in return for your life. As we see in Egypt and, and likewise what he's eventually going to do in Babylon, God overthrows the nations in the armies opposed to him. True statement. But all of that points to the greater exchange that's going to happen in about 10 chapters. That God, yes, destroys armies, destroys and upheaves nations to preserve his people, but there is a greater exchange coming. And what you see in, in chapters 52 and 53 is the suffering servant where one man is going to be exchanged for the people. The suffering servant, God in the flesh, Jesus, the Son of God, draws near to us, the broken. And in those chapters, we see this, this forward-looking prophecy of what this 
Jesus will do is that He will bear our condemnation. The condemnation that we even feel now was born upon Him. And by His wounds, by His death and suffering on the cross, we are healed. And then God does something. It's kind of funny. But what He does through the rest of this passage in verses 8-15, through 15, He really just poses a bunch of rhetorical questions. Really, who can compare? What did I just share with you that I've redeemed you? You're precious to me. You're honored by me. I love you. What God could do that besides me? It's really not an open question. It's really a rhetorical question. Because he's saying in verse 10, no God was formed before me and no God was formed after me. He stands alone as the Most High. No rival. No equal. No one to dethrone him. No one with any possible strength to do that. Verse 11, besides me, there is no Savior. There is no possible redemption through anything or anyone else. It's through Christ alone that we are saved. Verse 13, he speaks against our doubts. Oh, I work. And who can turn it back? Who could alter what God has done? Who could go back to the Exodus and reverse those events? Who could go back to choosing Abraham? Who could go back to preventing Abraham from sacrificing his son and providing a sacrifice? No one. The hope for us is that if he wants to save you, there is absolutely nothing that will stop him. If he sets his mind to it, he will do it. If he speaks forth a word, it will not return void. It will accomplish what he has set it to do. Nothing can stop the Lord from reaching you. Nothing can stop him from Nothing can, well, nothing can take you out of his hand. No one and nothing can separate you from his love because he says, You're mine. Who can compare? There's another promise paired with this. It's really good. Verse 5. Fear not, for I'm with you. God gives us his presence. What's the big deal about his presence? Well, in this, he's talking to a people who only knew him as being in the temple, being in the the Holy of Holies, the place where the most high priest would go once a year. God is saying to his people in an exiled nation, I'm with you. But what's the big deal about his presence besides that? Exodus 3. When Yahweh encounters Moses in the burning bush, and Moses realizes who it is, the Lord says, remove your sandals, for you're standing on holy ground.
And the Lord speaks with Moses. Just put yourself in that setting. And the Lord says, I've heard the cries of my people. I'm going to send you to deliver them out. But what's crucial about that is, is the Lord says, I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with my people to bring them out of oppression and to bring them into the promised land. Or if you look at Psalm 16, what David says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or again, look at Psalm 51, David's psalm of repentance. Where he says, cast me not from your presence. Do not take your spirit from me. Because he knew it was essential. That without your presence, Lord, I'm nothing. It is what sustains me. It is what keeps me together. Cast me not from your presence. Or even John 17, when Jesus is praying on our behalf, he prayed to the Father that we would be kept in God's name, which is his presence. If you look at that, when you read through the Old Testament, it's what you would call name theology. When the name of the Lord would go with him, when the name of the Lord would reside, it was his presence. Or as we just sang, that remember that his name will make a way. It's his presence. And that it wouldn't just make a way, but that we would actually dwell in it. And so Jesus praying that should signify for us that it's essential for the way we live. And that's what Jesus did. If you go back to John 1, saying that he dwelled among us. But then through his death and through his resurrection, we've been given access to his presence greater than ever before. No longer tarnished by sin, but because of Jesus' redemption, his spirit, the Holy Spirit, now dwells within us. What does his spirit do? What does his presence do? There's a lot of things, but we're just going to talk about two. In summary, one, his presence brings order to the chaos and refines us. In uh, verse 2 here in chapter 43, says, when you pass through the waters, which is essentially chaos, if you look at its theme and at, at its use in the Old Testament, that water, specifically the sea, is used to, to communicate chaos to us. And what he says is that I will be with you. And so we see that in the Exodus moment where God parts the waters. He's parting the chaos and he's bringing them through it. But to even think, the reason why we're passing through waters in the first place is because he's with us. It's not that we had, man, just a running start and we got in, we got caught up in the waves, like, oh, now God help me. The reason why we're, we're in it and why we're making any progress is because he's with us. It shows that not, that he only, eh, sorry, this shows that he doesn't just make things happen, but he brings peace to our souls. He brings sustenance to us. And likewise with the flames, with the fire. They don't consume you, but they refine you. 
And what God is saying to his people in the text is that you're in hostile territory. They know that. You're away from home. But what God's saying to them is this. I'm bringing you through this so that you would actually repent. So that you would actually follow me. I'll handle Babylon. Don't worry about that. But what's most important is that you get right with me. This relationship is what's most important. And what God may be saying to you today, either through this passage or just this morning in general, regardless of where you're at, the chaos that you're going through, the trials that you feel, the flames that you can feel, whether it's through family strife, whether it's through depression or anxiety or work or feelings of failure or condemnation, God is saying, I'm bringing you through this mess because I love you. And I'm going to bring you to the other side of this, but you're going to be different than the way you are right now. It's going to be better. But what's going to be or what's going to be necessary between now and then is that you may have to let some things go. You may, but most likely, need to spend some extensive time in prayer. You may need to be stripped of some things that you're finding your comfort in, you're finding your identity in. Because God is coming in and residing in us, family. And light and darkness do not mix. But what happens is when the light comes in, it exposes the darkness and it pushes the darkness out. God is coming into the mess. And that's a good thing. Because He's making His home in us. But we often forget that that's going to hurt. There are areas and in, in situations that it's just going to hurt but what God says in the pain, in the trial, when we feel the tension, look at my son. Look at what Jesus endured for you. Look at the cross. Look at the suffering. Look at the joy that he had set before him as he endured all of it. And it's that same joy that God is imparting to us. And that it would help, it would sustain us, it would propel us forward and to change us. Number two, his presence makes us witnesses of his power and love. God blesses us with his presence, not only so we would experience healing, experience joy, and every other wonder that he gives. He also gives it so that we would in turn be witnesses of his love and his power to this world. He transforms a people who then out of that transformation seek transformation in the world. It's a natural flow. If there's a transformed person or community, the natural flow is to then look outward. Okay, we're in this city. We're in this neighborhood. Let's go. See, what he does in this passage, he makes exiled Israel his witnesses in Babylon, of all places. 
And what he says through Jeremiah, seek the welfare of the city. All right. But he also makes us his witnesses in our context. If we've been given his presence, we have been given the true relationship that experiences God on the regular. Not just in the special moments, but on the regular. That, in essence, means that we relate to him on a deeper and more intimate level. Now, I think we can hear that and say, yeah, okay. I see it in scripture. I try to do that. I try to emulate that or seek it. But it's often hard in practice and continual practice. Because the common issue is that where we are in our context in the West is that we can fall into a cultural default or rut that can essentially minimize a relationship with God to merely talking about Him but never to Him. Memorizing truth but never seeing it as God speaking directly to you in the moment or seeing it as God speaking it to you to shape you or to transform you. It's often like if you go to the zoo and you see lines that have been born in captivity. They've never known the hunt. They've never known the the actual natural way that they were designed to live. They're just fed some meat, lay around, and repeat day after day after day. But when you see the lions in the wild, you see the strength in their eyes. You see the, the ferociousness. You see them as they were meant to be. And likewise, church, likewise, family, we need to remember where we are called to thrive, not where we're called to be comfortable. So, because what can happen is we can, we can read Scripture, like I said, right? We can see the ways that God interacts with His people and think, man, that's radical. But when it comes to actually applying it to our own lives, like, oh, God's toned it down a little bit since then, right? Like, he's a little bit more normal. He, he works more with my schedule. He works more with my desires. He never really requires anything to, to pull me out of my comfort zone. We can justify that, and we can create lives. We can create uh, church structures around that, even. But where is that in Scripture? The truth is that He's calling us, both you and me, further and deeper than we could ever imagine. Because we'll find out, maybe you're already there, but when you take that plunge, you will experience more freedom, more peace, more righteousness, and all the fruit of the Spirit. But it comes with risk. And so with that, I do want to have you mull over this question. Do you actually hunger for his presence? Not to change up the question like, well, Dirk, don't, don't you mean hunger for his redemption? Like, 
Yes, they come hand in hand. But let's not circumvent the question. Let's deal with it. Do you hunger for his presence? Because we see throughout Isaiah that there's a faithful remnant who continue to turn to the Lord throughout the trials because they're desperate. They were in chaos all the time. They knew that God's redemption and His presence was literally everything. They were forced into a place where they would cry out to the Lord, and from that they were hungry, and from that God gave them His presence. But what about us right now? What about you right now? If we want to be sustained, church, if we want to be sustained in this life throughout the rest of this year, all the trials, we need God's presence to actually be felt in our lives and through us in our city. And so if you feel the lack this morning, see this as the perfect time that God has given you to repent. To humble yourself before Him and seek Him. To reject whatever's holding you back, whether it's sin or foolishness or I don't know. But to reject those things and to turn to the one who calls you His own. Linger in passages like Psalm 16 in the entire upper room discourse in, in John chapters uh, 13 through 17. Linger in those and ask God to meet you with his presence. Some of the most intimate things that Jesus speaks are in those passages. So linger in there. And real easy today, go to the prayer team. Man, you're, you're feeling the lack. You're like, God, I don't even know what to pray. Go to people who will pray for you, who will labor in prayer over you and ask to be stirred up. But if you feel the hunger, pray for more. You need it. Right? To think, oh man, God met me in this moment. He gave me a good word. You keep needing more. You keep needing to hear His voice and His guidance and His presence because you need to be sustained. You need it, and this community needs it. Pray for more for yourself. Pray for more for this body. And bring people into it with you. Have it be a part of your conversations. Have it be a part of when you meet up for coffee or lunch, or have people over to your home. And pray for them. Encourage them in it. Equip them with whatever way or means God has given you. Because we want to see the body at work. We want to see that hunger stirred up. We want to see God's presence Around it and in it. And finally, if you feel that hunger, real practical, pray over your neighborhood and city. And I mean, that just literally means go for a walk, go for a drive, and ask God for an outpouring of His Spirit. Because I don't know if you feel this, but maybe. First thing, to pray that God would give you his heart for this city, for these neighborhoods. Because there's a lot of darkness, there's a lot of brokenness, 
We don't always see it. When we see new developments and we see um, new houses being built, we can obviously say, hey, things are going good. But to, to have God's perspective on this, let's pray for our city, let's pray for our neighborhoods. So in summary, we need his presence, family. We need his presence. Otherwise, what are we doing? I'm going to bring us to this final passage here, Exodus 33, 14 through 17. This interaction that Moses has with the Lord. The Lord said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Let's cling to these promises, church. Let's press further into what life could actually be in his presence, pursuing his presence, and seeing that transform our lives in our city. And so with that, we're going to respond. I'll give you an opportunity for that. The band's going to come up. We're going to linger in music just for a little bit. And with that, we're going to give you time to pray. To really go before the Lord and lay these burdens down before Him. The things that are in the way, the things that have been holding us back from truly engaging Him. So also be an opportunity to take communion. If you didn't grab one of those cups and the bowls at any of the entrances here, now the time to do that. And, and with that, it's, it's not just routine again. It's, it's this participation in remembering the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Because it's in that sacrifice we are redeemed and we're given His presence. And so we take the bread, we take the cup, and we remember His body broken, His blood shed for us. It's not a light thing. It's a gift. And as you go through this, God may be, or already has been, speaking to some of you this morning. And we know God can do that in the moment, and so if you believe that God has really put something on you to share with the body for encouragement, or whatever that might be, um, we encourage you to go up to Daniel here in the front and talk with him about how to share that. And then finally, we're going to worship. We're going to respond in song. We're going to respond in singing God's truths and seeking His presence because it's worth it. Let's pray. Lord, who can compare to You? Who can compare to Your grace and Your redemption? Into the, who can compare to the love that You've shown us? 
the sacrifice that you made so that we would be free, so that we would be made whole. Lord, we bring our griefs, our burdens, our struggles before you right now. We lay them at the foot of the cross. And we ask, Lord, come. Restore what is broken. Heal what needs to be mended. Remind us of your promises, Lord. That we are precious in your sight. We are honored and loved by you. But God, we also ask in boldness to bring your presence, refresh it anew in our lives. To not just go through lip service or routine, but to follow you, to speak with you as a real person. Because you're here now in this room. You dwell within us. God, we seek you. We want to hunger more for you. We want to see you move in power and love. Stir up this body, Lord, for your glory. Stir up this body to transform the city, to see the gospel go forth to see your presence go and soften the hearts of those who are broken. That they, and likewise us, would find refuge within you. Would find their home in you. Make this our highest desire. Nothing else, Lord, but to lift you up to make you known, to follow you, to lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and run. Run towards you. Run with you. Jesus, we love you. Amen.